If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to 1 Peter. If you're a guest with us, we are actually concluding a series of sermons studying Peter's first letter to the churches in the dispersion. At this point in the series, I'm always a little attached, don't know what to do next. We will be moving to Jonah next week, so don't worry, I do have a bit of a plan there. But I'm always attached to the book at this point. So today we will spend time in our text, and then what we'll do is we will actually fan back just a little bit to, to do some macro whole book applications as we remind ourselves of what we have learned from the Apostle Peter over these last several months. If you're here and you don't have a Bible, you should be able to find a copy of God's Word underneath the seat in front of you or near you. Uh, if you don't have a copy, you can call your own. We'd love for you to be able to take that home and just consider that a gift from us to you as you read more in the Scripture and learn more about who Jesus Christ is. Today we're going to begin reading in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. Peter writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. Let's pray. Father, your word is truth. It is a light unto our feet. It is a lamp unto our path. And we ask, Father, that you would help us now as we turn our attention to your word that you would write its eternal truths on our hearts. Father, we ask and pray that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see so that we might be able to grow in conformity with Christ if we are Christians and if we are not Christians, so that we might perhaps for the first time hear and understand the message of salvation as it has been revealed in the Bible. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the Christ of God. Amen. When Billy Graham was 92 years old, he was struggling with Parkinson's disease. And in January, a month before his 93rd birthday, the leaders of Charlotte, North Carolina, invited their favorite son to a luncheon in his honor. Billy initially hesitated because of the struggles that he was having with Parkinson, but the leaders in Charlotte assured him that they did not expect a major address, that all they wanted him to do was to come so that they could honor him. So he agreed. After wonderful things were said about Billy after their time of lunch together, Dr. Graham stood up to the podium and he looked out on the crowd and he said, Today I am reminded of Albert Einstein, the great physicist who this month has been honored by Time magazine as one of the men of the century. Einstein was once traveling from Princeton on a train when the conductor came down the aisle and he was punching tickets for every passenger. And when he came to Einstein, Einstein reached into his pocket but he couldn't find his ticket. So he reached into his trousers pocket, but it wasn't there either. So then he opened up his briefcase, but he couldn't find it there. Then he looked in the seat beside him, and it was nowhere to be found. The conductor said, Dr. Einstein, I know who you are. We all know who you are. I'm sure that you bought a ticket. Don't worry about it. Einstein nodded appreciatively. The conductor continued down the aisle, punching tickets for everybody. And then as he was moving from that train car to the next train car, he glanced back and he saw Dr. Einstein under his seat looking for his ticket. So he rushed back down and he told the great physicist that he knew who he was. He was sure that he had bought a ticket, that it was no problem at all. 
To which Einstein looked at the young man and said, young man, I too know who I am. What I don't know is where I am going. From beginning to end, Peter has reminded us where we are going. If we have been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, to an eternal glory that is before us in Christ. But now here at the very end of the book, we come to words that we often pass over far too quickly where the apostle reminds us of our present plight and he spurs us on forward as he says, suffering is at hand, but believers must stand in the grace that God has given. Three simple points will frame our time together today. Who, why, and what. Notice first, why Peter has written to them. I want you to look with me again in verse 12. By Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand for a minute. Peter tells us the letter carrier, Silvanus, is verse 12, a faithful brother, because he would serve as an interpreter of its contents if these believers had questions about what was written in it. And then he would convey to them news from Peter that's not mentioned in this verse 12 brief letter. Peter never intended this letter to cover everything or say everything about the Christian life. He wrote to a specific group of people, elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. He wrote for a specific reason. They were grieved by various trials as they suffered for righteousness' sake in the flesh for a little while because of their faith in Jesus Christ. He wrote to them with a very specific purpose, verse 12, to exhort From the very beginning to the end of the letter, Peter has been exhorting them and encouraging them and us to live faithfully as Christians in a non-Christian society, a non-Christian society that is not very different from our own. Exhorting them and us to hope fully on the grace that will be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. To be holy in all of our conduct, not just how we live on Sundays or publicly in our life together, but in every area of our life. To conduct ourselves in our living in the fear of God. To love each other. To love each other when it's hard to love each other. To love each other because Christ has loved us. To be subject to governing authorities and unjust rulers and even unbelieving husbands. To honor everyone, even if we don't think they're particularly worthy of honor. To keep our tongue and our speech from evil. To honor Christ the Lord as holy. To be prepared in every season of our life to be able to make a defense for the hope that is in us because of Jesus Christ. To be self-controlled in the way that we live our life. To restrain our appetites. To restrain our words. To restrain our desires. To show hospitality to others. To not be surprised at trials when they come upon us. To rejoice and give praise even in the midst of suffering because it's easy to rejoice and give praise when everything's going the way that we want it to. But when we're suffering or oppressed or life is not working out the way that we want it to, it is difficult to rejoice. So he reminds them to entrust themselves to a faithful creator, to be subject to the elders of their church and follow their leadership, to clothe ourselves with humility towards outsiders, to resist the devil. By now, if you've been here for any length of time, you've heard these over and over and over again in this letter. From beginning to end, Peter has encouraged them and us to live faithfully as Christians, and he's grounded that exhortation in his witness. Verse 12, I have written to you exhorting and declaring. 
The word translated declaring is better translated witnessing, and we know that when we see that Peter ends the chapter the same way he begins the chapter. Look with me in chapter 5, verse 1. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ. Same root word. Teaching us that Peter's encouragement to these believers is real because he is a witness. A witness, as Terry Krause would say, of what God has done and continues to do and will do on behalf of believers in Jesus Christ. A witness that testifies, verse 12, that this is the true grace of God. This, the letter as a whole, is the true grace of God because it is the good news of God's grace. That Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That we have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. That the outcome of our faith, no matter what we experience in this life, will be the salvation of our souls. That our faith in Jesus Christ will ultimately result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ when he returns. That if we are insulted for the name of Christ, we are blessed because the spirit of God and Christ dwell and rest upon us. That he who has called us to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will himself restore and confirm and strengthen and establish us. Friends, this is the true grace of God. When we're reading letters like 1 Peter, this is the stuff of salvation. This is the type of teaching that teaches us the truth about ourselves and the truth about who God is and the truth about how we're to live in the world as elect exiles as it encourages us when our hearts are weary and it prepares us for the evil day and it prepares us to live for that day that is in front of us. This, the true grace of God, Peter is a witness of, is in direct contrast to the false grace preaching of false witnesses that we find everywhere in the New Testament. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the book of Jude. It should be just a few books over, a few pages over. Jude, verse 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the true grace of God teaches us that it is possible to preach grace wrongly. That it is possible for people to pervert the grace of God, to preach a grace that isn't grace. If you tell people why Jesus died, love, but not what Jesus did, bore our sins in his body on the tree, then you have perverted the grace of God and preached a false grace. The true grace of God, Peter is a witness of, stands in contrast to the false grace of false witnesses that we find everywhere in the New Testament. And these believers are to stand firm in that true grace. Standing firm is different than taking a stand. Peter does not tell them there's no neutrality, take a stand, resist to the culture. He tells them, stand firm in what I have encouraged you to do and testified to. Standing firm is also different than failing to stand. 
He does tell them, do not fall, be immovable, be unyielding, be steadfast, but only in relation to what has been revealed and not in relation to everyone who disagrees with them. And in this way, standing firm is active for Peter. It's not passive. They are to stand firm in the true grace of God that has secured them. Peter, here at the end of this letter, threads the delicate balance between the indicative of what God has done for them and the imperative of what they are called to do as believers in Jesus Christ. And in so doing, he tells us, though grace has grasped the believer in Jesus Christ and believers have been born again by God's grace, grace does not cancel the imperative to stand firm because suffering is at hand. And believers must stand firm in the grace that God has given Standing firm is the criterion for Peter by which disciples are distinguished. It is the crucial test for Peter of faithfulness. It is the endurance to the end and the abiding in Christ and the continuance in his word and the standing firm that marks the disciple. And friends, it guards against every notion for Peter that a believer is secure in the eternal salvation irrespective of how they live their lives, no matter how much sin that they fall into or how far they backslide from their profession of faith and their holiness or how much they refuse to obey biblical commands. You cannot stand firm when you reject God's word. Brothers and sisters, the call to stand firm is a warning to everybody at the end of Peter's letter to appreciate the lengths and the heights to which temporary faith can carry those who have it. Because it is very possible to have uplifting and ennobling and reforming and exhilarating and wonderful Christian experiences of power and truth of the gospel that come into such close contact with the supernatural forces that are actually operative in God's kingdom that it is indistinguishable to the human mind as whether the person is actually a believer or not, but they are not yet one of God's children. They're not a partaker of an heir of the grace of life. So Peter says to these disciples, struggling here at the time that he is writing this letter, suffering in ways that they never anticipated. You want to look like a disciple of Jesus Christ? Stand firm. Yesterday I was teaching the women's Bible study, and one of the things that I told them is one of the most discouraging truths that we often find in the context of the church is the doctrine of perseverance. We discourage people with it because they think that I have to keep up a certain level of holiness in my life to prove that I'm a believer, Or we misuse it because we just tell people, it really doesn't matter how you live your life. If you profess to follow Jesus Christ, then you're good, you're fine, don't worry about it. But that's not what the doctrine of perseverance is to do at all. The doctrine of perseverance is is teaching us that if we keep the faith, if we continue with the local church, if we are steadfast in trusting Jesus Christ, then no matter what providences assail us in our life, no matter what sins we are committing that we're trying to put to death in our life, that we are actually showing that we are one of God's children. The doctrine of perseverance is not telling us that we're good no matter what we do. The doctrine of perseverance is teaching us that the people who keep faith with Jesus Christ, those who stand firm, those are his children. Professing believer in the room today, are you standing firm? Keeping the faith once for all delivered to to the saints. Trusting the word of Christ. Persevering in your love for Jesus. Suffering is at hand, but believers must stand firm in the grace that God has given. So, Peter writes them and tells them why they need to stand. Notice second, who Peter tells them to love. 
Look with me in verse 13. She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. And so does Mark, my son. Greet one another with the kiss of love. The entire letter is actually framed around the theme of God's sovereign choice. If you have your Bible, flip with me to chapter 1, verse 1. And if you like to write in your Bible, beside verses 13 and 14 of chapter 5, you should just write 1-1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And then at the end, what we just read, she who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greeting. At the very beginning and the end, Peter is reminding these believers and us that nothing happens to them apart from from God's sovereign hand. Nothing occurs in their life by chance. Both their salvation and their suffering come from the hand of the sovereign, loving, triune God who has set them apart for himself from before the foundation of the world. And that is a comforting thought. As Peter reminds these suffering believers of their displacement and alienation and the experiences of their brothers and sisters throughout the world by referring to Babylon. She who is at Babylon sends you greetings. At this point, the historical Babylon that we read about in the Old Testament was a city in ruins. So Peter is not speaking about Babylon the city. Peter is drawing on all of the Old Testament tradition of Babylon representing people who are opposed to God. And writing symbolically about the church in Babylon sending her greeting to these elect exiles who are scattered all throughout Asia Minor to remind these believers in the church that the church of God everywhere is an embassy of God's kingdom in enemy-occupied territory. And he's framing the letter, uh, teaching them this, by reminding them at the beginning and the end that there are elect exiles, and Peter is among the chosen of God in Babylon at the end. It's a subtle reminder from Peter that these readers and hearers, though encouraged and exhorted and strengthened, must not forget that they are exiles who are chosen and precious. And in that sense, when we're at the end of the letter, it is so much more than a benign greeting from a sister church. Oh, hey, we said hello. It's another encouragement like that from the churches of Asia Minor to remind them that they are an exilic community made up of men and women, young and old, educated and uneducated, rich and poor, from all types of ethnic backgrounds, looking forward in hope because this world is not their home. And in this way, Peter is telling them, do not lose heart. You have not been uniquely singled out. You are experiencing what your brotherhood throughout the world is experiencing. The people of God here, just like the people of God there, just like the people of God everywhere, are suffering at the hands of people who do not love Jesus Christ. They are alienated by people who they are misrepresented in front of. They are ostracized and overlooked. They're torn down and not cared for because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Do not lose heart. Remember that you are not alone, that your hardships are like their hardships, and together you will all safely make it home. Peter, here at the end of his letter, is doing the exact same thing that the book of Hebrews is doing in Hebrews chapter 11. We don't have time to read it all, but what you need to do this afternoon is write it down and go and read all of Hebrews chapter 11 and remind yourself of at least this section in Hebrews 11 verses 13 and following. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. 
If they had been thinking that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has repaired a place for them and a city. Brothers and sisters, one of the reasons that we are so frustrated by the providences that God brings into our lives is because we are living for this land and not that land. And so at the very end of this letter, Peter reminds these believers, this world is not your home. This world will disappoint you. Your friends and family will fail you. The people that you love most and trust most in this life might desert you. But there is one who loves you more than anyone could love you. And there is a land that is unlike this land where there will be no weeping and there will be no cancer and there will be no sadness and there will be no abortion and there will be no miscarriage and there will be no one who's struggling in that society to find joy and happiness. That land is before us. So Peter reminds them, look forward, do not lose heart. He's doing the same thing that we do by writing Christian books and Christian testimonies when we remind ourselves of great biographies. One of the reasons that you need to read books is that you need to read Christian biographies of men and women who have gone before us living in this world as if it's not their home, finding their stories and reminding ourselves that we are not the first people to suffer, that we are not the first people to have hardship, that we are not the first people to be cast off by the very people that we love, reminding ourselves through their stories that there is something better than living for this life and this life alone. Peter is reminding these people You're not singled out. You're just like everybody else. We send you greetings. Keep going on. Stand firm. Do not quit. And he's not the only apostle to speak this way. At the end of his second letter, John describes the church as the elect lady who sends greetings to the other sister churches. Friends, the apostles are teaching us that God's bride of the church is chosen and precious even when she is besieged on every side by her enemies. Do you believe that? And do you live your life like you believe that? And the love between her members should be comparable to the love that exists in a healthy family. Verse 13, and so does Mark, my son. Peter had known Mark from the earliest days of the church when meetings used to be held in his mother's home. Acts chapter 12, verse 12. When Peter realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. Calling Mark his son demonstrates the love that he had for this man, a man that he had discipled, a man that he had done ministry with, a man that he had suffered with, a man that he had spent so much time with that Mark would later take up the teachings of Peter and write the gospel of Mark. Peter modeling for us that you can accomplish more through the people that we invest in. Brothers and sisters, members of this church, are you investing in other believers and accomplishing more in this life by pouring into them and discipling them and ministering to them and teaching them the ways of God as Peter taught Mark with a fraternal love, doing spiritual good to other members of this church? And perhaps right now, I'm just going to anticipate your objection thinking either, one, I'm too busy, and you just need to know everybody else in this church thinks that they're too busy. You're not alone. But second, thinking I'm not qualified. Brothers and sisters, everybody in this church thinks that they're not qualified. It takes not a lot of maturity to read the Bible out loud with somebody else and ask them, how can I pray for you to do spiritual good? Fellow members of this church, are you investing in one another and doing spiritual good? 
Brothers and sisters, the love between members should be comparable to the love that exists between a healthy family. So Peter says, greet one another with the kiss of love. And this is the verse that nobody knows what to do with, and everybody wonders what I'm going to say this morning. So we need to ask ourselves, why, instead of saying, look to your right and left and fulfill the commandment now, why would Peter say this to the people when we think a handshake or a hug would do? If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 43. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him the crowd, a crowd with swords and clubs, from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Mark tells us in his gospel that Jesus was identified and betrayed by a kiss. And now here, Peter, exhorting these believers, reverses the imagery and says that you are greeted and welcomed by such affection. By the affection of a betrayer is reversed in the context of a now family and says the way that we should greet one another and love one another and minister to one another is with such an affection, unstained from any kind of lust, that is, unstained from any kind of sensuality, keeping with Peter's repeated emphasis throughout the entire letter to love one another and to love Christians because suffering is at hand and believers must stand in the grace of God. And one of the ways that they learn to stand in the grace of God is through the love that they receive in the context of the local church among fellow members who are now their brothers and sisters and family in Christ fellow members of this church, would those who are not members of our church in the unbelieving world think that you have such affection for your fellow members? Would they look at the way that you speak to one another and text about one another and talk about one another and think that that's a family or a feud? Peter encourages these believers at the end, telling them that they are to love one another with a familial love. This is one of the reasons, if you're not a member of the church, that we tell you to join the church to help us fulfill these commands to love one another. And as our brother Eugene said, if you want to learn more about that, you can come to the class in just a few weeks. Why Peter has written to them, who Peter tells them to love, notice third, what Peter offers to them. Verse 14, peace to all of you who are in Christ. By now in this sermon, and certainly at this part, of the sermon, you are not surprised to learn that this letter concludes the same way that it begins, with the peace wish. I want you to look to chapter 1, verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
Believers in these churches scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia are buffeted by trials and persecutions. They're being alienated and ostracized. The stress of life is significant. They're experiencing hardship. And what believers need in such a situation is God's peace. A peace that will enable them to stand firm amidst all of the pressures that they are experiencing in the evil age. A peace that would fortify them so that they could endure against opposition. A peace that would help them to persevere to the end as they look forward to their eternal reward. A peace that would actually help them while they are on gospel mission, living as exiles in a foreign land. A peace that Peter himself knows about very well. Once again, I want you to look with me at the end of the Gospels. Look with me in John chapter 20. And learn a little bit more about Peter's life. John chapter 20, verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. A real quick context. Jesus is died on the cross. He's risen from the dead. But before that, Jesus has been betrayed, as we learned in our text. And the very first thing that Jesus says to them is, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. The Prince of Peace gave them peace, and now the Apostle preaches a message of peace, of spiritual serenity in the face of constant persecution and discipleship failure because he himself had received the same blessing and the same circumstances from the risen Lord. It is one of the most astonishing teachings in the gospel that Jesus, when he comes to his disciples, and you can imagine how scared they must be, not only at his death, but then to see him standing there in their presence, having betrayed him, the very first thing that Jesus says to them is peace. He does not remind them of their sin and of their betrayal. He does not make sure that they've suffered for their sin enough. He does not tell them that they were foolish, that he had already told them that he was going to raise from the dead. The very first thing that he says to them is peace be with you. And in case they did not get it the first time, he says it again. Peace be with you. Do not be anxious. Do not be weary. Do not be scared. Peace be with you. And then he tells them, go into all the world and take a message of peace to people who are anxious and need to know that they can hear a gospel of peace and love. That they can hear a gospel of one who suffered for them and receive a peace that surpasses understanding. That if they turn from their sins and trust in this Christ, that they themselves can be recipients of this type of peace. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is the wonderful, astonishing message of the gospel. Fellow believers struggling along the way. Jesus does not treat us as our sins deserve. He did not treat them as their sins deserve. But he comforts us with a message of love and peace. And if you are here today and you are not a Christian, you will hear this message over and over again from the pulpit of this church, that you are a sinner, that you deserve wrath, 
You should go to hell in the darkest corner of it for all of eternity. But Jesus Christ, the mighty friend of sinners, suffered in your place on the cross. And he now extends to you peace through the preached word if you would repent of your sins and trust in Christ. And we invite you today to believe upon him and to receive this peace. Peace, forgiveness of sins. Peace that knows hope of everlasting life. Friend, come to Christ. If you want to know more about that peace, we would love to talk to you. We have a fellowship meal, but there will be people there who would love to talk to you while they're eating. And I'll be standing at that tunnel for a while after the service. Come find me or one of us. We would love to open the Bible with you and tell you about the peace that you can have. But believer, this peace wasn't only for those who were unbelievers in that moment. This peace was for those who were anxious. Anxious there in the upper room and anxious there receiving Peter's letter. Anxious about their circumstances. Anxious about the way that they had been living their life and how hard it had been. And Jesus and Peter extend to both peace. And now, having been authorized to pronounce it upon those who receive this gospel, Peter says, peace to all of you who are in Christ. And that is the blessed portion of everyone who trusts in Jesus. If you have trusted in Jesus, you are one of God's elect, chosen people in Christ, foreknown before the foundation of the world. You've been sprinkled, as Peter has taught us, with the precious blood of Christ who bore your sins in his body on the tree. Your union with Christ in his atoning death has ended the reign of sin in your life. You are believers in the one who has been raised from the dead, and you've been given a share in his resurrection life. In his death and resurrection, Christ now represents you as one who is united to him by faith. And the Spirit has come, and it dwells among you, and you live in fellowship with God. You have not seen him, but you love him, and you now wait with eager anticipation upon his appearing. Peter's apostolic blessing reaches across the centuries and around the globe, proclaiming to these believers a pardon for sin and a peace that endureth God's own presence to cheer and to God. Strength for today and a bright hope for tomorrow, blessing all ours with 10,000 beside, reminding them that though suffering is at hand, they must stand firm in the grace of God because they will, in a short time, share in his heavenly glory. Peter's written to us, but what I would like us to do is to just take a few moments for some whole book applications before we close. And I got like 16 here. First, the church is an embassy of the kingdom. I want you to look with me in chapter 2 very quickly. And all of these are in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, and I want you to think as we go through these applications, how these directly come out and indirectly come out of what has been written to us in 1 Peter. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Just like when we go into a foreign country and we go to the embassy and we stand there and they say, you are now standing on the sovereign ground of the United States of America. When you come into the local church, you are standing on the sovereign ground of the king of the universe. And our church is to be an embassy of the kingdom, a light to the nations, declaring to them mercy, declaring to them that we were not a people and God has made us a people. Friends, 
If you are more disunified than unified, to what sense can we invite the unbelieving world to be a people with us? We are a people who have been brought together under the banner of the gospel, living in light, having come out of darkness. Fellow believer, if you are here and you're a member of this church and you are hiding sin, and you are hiding it in the darkness of your sin, you are preventing us from extending the grace of God to other people, and you are compromising the integrity of this church. You are compromising the integrity and the witness of this church by hiding and covering sin as if you are a holy people when you are not. The church is to be an embassy of God's kingdom, a holy and chosen people who have been set apart in the world. But if we look like the world, they will never know that we've been set apart. Second, expect suffering. Chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Friends, again, one of the great struggles in the church is that we have not been taught to expect suffering. Expecting opposition is what the church should do. So we should not be surprised when our political leaders fail us and our neighbors fail us and our boss fails us and our family fails us, we should expect suffering in this life and know that in ways that we would have never planned for ourselves, God is using the suffering to move us to his eternal kingdom. Friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. Instead, not being surprised, come together as the people of God and help one another bear up under the burdens of suffering. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Third, agreement with those who are in leadership over you is not required for submission. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governing authorities as those sent by him. Chapter 2, verse 18. Servants, be subject to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and to the gentle, but also to the unjust. Chapter 3, verse 1, likewise, wives, be subject to your own leaders so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. Chapter 5, verse 5, likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Being in submission to those who are in authority over you does not require that you agree with them on everything. One of the most unhelpful things that we do in America and in the context of the church is to think that if I do not agree, I do not have to obey. And one of the areas that we see that that is not true is in the home. Go ask the parents how they treat their kids when they don't care if their kid agrees with them or not when they've been given a command. It doesn't matter if you agree. You have to obey because this is what we're doing. And that is no less true in the context of our society and in our church and even in difficult relationships when perhaps you are married to an unbeliever. Some of those providences and circumstances are difficult. And some of them are more challenging than we would have ever wanted them to be. But Peter says the way that we distinguish ourselves in those moments is by yielding to appropriate authority, not allowing them to abuse us, not allowing them to oppress us, but yielding to authority and saying, I live for another world. Fourth, hope is a motivation for love. Chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, 
for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ear, his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Friends, hope of another world is a motivation to love and to suffer for righteousness' sake. To love those who are unlovable. To love those who are difficult to love. To love those who require a lot of patience for, uh, for us. To love those who require a lot of forbearance for us. In the church and outside of the church. Hope of another world is motivation to live this way. Perhaps the reason your relationships are frustrated is that you are not hoping enough for another world. You are not looking forward and realizing that that is what is before us. Fifth, friendship is necessary to live the Christian life. Friendship is necessary to live the Christian life. Chapter 1, verse 22. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. Chapter 5, verse 9. Resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. The reference to brotherhood and familial love throughout 1 Peter is actually calling a group of people together who are not related to each other and telling them to live like a family together in friendship because their families have forsaken them and their neighbors have alienated them and they have ostracized them and belittled them. One of the great weaknesses of the modern church is that we have such terrible friendships. Not many acquaintances but terrible, weak friendships. Friendships with others of the same sex and friendships with those who are not of the same sex. And I think that one of the great schemes of the devil is to either make everything homoerotic or to make everything heterosexual sensual to where we can never actually be friends with one another and bear one another's burdens. We are so afraid of all of the illicit things that have happened that the church has been weakened and we don't walk alongside one another and bear one another's burdens. There are friends who are in this room that without them, there is no way, not only would I not be your pastor today, but I'm not sure that I would be married or alive today. They have bared up under burdens when I was weakest. God gives us his friends as our own. Brothers and sisters, friendship is so desperately needed because we are so desperately lonely. That's true today, and that was true in the first century. You can imagine a lonely people as they're being alienated from everyone and everything around them. So Peter writes to them about the brotherhood, about the family, about the love that they are to have for one another. Are you being a good friend to your friends? Are you bearing up under their burdens? Are you forgiving them of their sins? Are you being patient with them as they've been patient with you? Are you praying for them? and serving them, and giving to them at great cost to yourself. Perhaps you're here today and you say, I need a friend. Perhaps you're here today saying that, but you also need to be a friend to somebody else. It's very easy to come in and say, no one was friendly to me, while also not being friendly to anyone else. Brothers and sisters, Jesus gives us his friends as our own. Sixth, be sober-minded as we've reminded ourselves, for the sake of holiness, prayer, and resisting the devil. Sober-mindedness is mentioned three times. 
Chapter 1, verses 13 and 15. Chapter 4, verse 7. Chapter 5, verse 8. In all of these, there's a connection to a sobriety of thought so that we can be a holy people, a prayerful people, a people who are able to resist sin. We are to be sober-minded. Six, seven, sorry. Be watchful. As we saw last week, we are to be a people who are looking forward and looking backwards, being watchful because of the schemes of the enemy. Eighth, we are to suffer for righteousness' sake, not for sin. Ninth, God opposes the proud. As he tells them to clothe themselves with humility, he is also inviting these people to be a humble people so that they might be able to live with other people. Proud people are difficult to live with. Humble people are easier to live with. Tenth, marriage is a gift, but it is not what makes you chosen and precious. In the verses that we read earlier, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, they are set apart as a unique and distinct and holy people of God. But it is not because they are married, and it is not because they are single, it is not because of their social status or any educational opportunity that is given to them. Marriage is a gift, but it is not what makes you chosen and precious. So for all of the single people here in our church, you are still chosen and precious. You equally contribute to the body of Christ. You are valuable to what we do here as a local church, even though your life circumstances might be different than you wish they were. And we pray that you would see your giftedness to us. You help us live the Christian life. Married people here, you are a gift to the church. And it is our prayer that your marriages would model the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are a great many people struggling in their marriages in this church and in other churches. And they need friends to help them persevere. Married people, live holy lives and be a gift to this body by modeling the gospel. Not managing each other's godliness, but serving one another as Christ the Lord has served us. Husbands in particular... You are commanded to live with your wife in an understanding way. Living with her in an understanding way does not mean that you always get your way. It means that you live with her in an understanding way, serving your wife. That is the picture that we see in Scripture, ministering to your wife. Brothers who are married, are you living with your bride in an understanding way and modeling for those around us the beautiful picture of marriage? Eleventh. The life of Jesus is an example for you, so you are to immerse yourself in the teaching of the Gospels. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. It is so much easier to read the epistles at times, and we do not give enough attention to the Gospels, but without the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, there would be no epistles. Friends, we are to immerse ourselves in the teaching of Jesus Christ and learn how to live like Jesus. Immerse ourselves in that teaching. Twelfth, worship is the natural response to the revelation of God in Christ. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. First Peter chapter 4, verse 11. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. First Peter chapter 5, verse 11. To him be the dominion forever and ever. The natural response to the revelation of God in Christ is worship. Friend, is your heart cold when you gather with us on Sunday mornings? You're moving through the liturgy, but you don't care and aren't paying attention. Worship is the natural response of the people of God to what has been revealed. Is your heart cold when you're reading Scripture at home? 
and moving through your devotional times. And perhaps you can check every year and every day away for years and for decades. But it means nothing to you and it's just a formality. Worship is the natural response to the revelation of God in Christ. Thirteenth, the hope of his return motivates you to live in the present. For those who are despairing among us and perhaps are in depression, what we need is a message that reminds us that we are living for another world and it helps carry us on day by day. For some of you, perhaps you are here and it is difficult enough literally to get out of bed. And there are times I've met with some who it is hard enough to even think to get out of bed and go to work. Friend, we are so glad that you are here. And we motivate you afresh with the hope of the gospel, reminding you that though your circumstances are difficult and tiresome, that there is another world that is coming. I think I'm 15th or something like that. Speech ethics. Look with me in chapter 2, verse 1. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Brothers and sisters, as people who have received a message of peace, we are to proclaim a gospel of peace, but we cannot do that when we are malicious with our words and deceiving other people and being hypocritical with the way that we speak to them and envious in our speech and slandering other people. The body of Christ, the embassy of the kingdom, is to use their words in a way that images the God who is a speaking God. And then lastly... Show hospitality. Chapter 4, verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Brothers and sisters, we are to open our homes and to minister to one another, inviting people into the brokenness of our lives. Having shared his story about Einstein, Billy Graham continued, See the suit that I'm wearing? It's a brand new suit. My children and my grandchildren are now telling me that I've gotten a little slovenly in my old age, that I used to be more fastidious. So I went out and bought a new suit for this luncheon and one more occasion. Do you know what that occasion is? This is the suit in which I will be buried. But when you hear that I'm dead, I don't want you to immediately remember the suit that I'm wearing today. I want you to remember this. Unlike Einstein, I not only know who I am, but I know where I am going. Do you? This letter tells us that you can know where you are going if you have hoped in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this letter prepares you in the face of suffering in this life to live for that life. May each of us live our lives so that when our ticket is punched, we do not have to worry about where we are going. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these, my friends. And Father, we thank you for this epistle that we've been able to give our attention to. It is a privilege to turn our attention to your word. And we are reminded that there are so many brothers and sisters around the world that do not have the privilege to be able to read the Bible in their language. And if they do, they might not have the freedom to be able to hear it preached aloud in their language. And yet we have both an abundance of Bibles and the privilege to sit here and to hear your word preached for as long as we would like. God, we pray that we would give ourselves to the teaching of your word. And we ask, Father, that you would help us as we leave this place to embody these truths 
as brothers and sisters in Christ. Father, I pray for these, my friends, that you would bless them and keep them and cause your face to shine upon them in Christ. Amen.